I remember looking at your aunt one day when she and I were dressing. I had not noticed before that she had such a protruding melon of a stomach, but I did not think she's pregnant until she began to look like other pregnant women, her shirt pulling and the white tops of her black pants showing. She could not have been pregnant, you see, because her husband had been gone for years. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Yoon Sun Lee, who has selected the opening narrative from Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior, Memoirs of a Girlhood Among Ghosts. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll use its first line as its title. You must not tell anyone. This narrative is complete in itself, even as it serves as the beginning of Kingston's book and of its first chapter, which is entitled No Name Woman. Yoon Sun Lee is the Ian Pierce Rogers Professor in American Literature and Chair of the English Department at Wellesley College. Yoon is also the first Vice President of the International Society for the Study of Narrative. Yoon has offered important research contributions to multiple fields, British Romanticism, Asian American Literature, Theory of the Novel, and Narrative Theory. She's the author of three books, Nationalism and Irony in 2004, which established her as an important voice in conversations about Romanticism, Modern Minority, Asian American Literature and Everyday Life, 2013, which makes a case for the everyday as a significant aspect of modernity, especially within Asian American culture. And her third book, Natural Laws of Plot, How Things Happen in Realist Novels, 2022, a study that connects the history of the novel and the history of science. Yoon argues that plot in the realist novel is given shape by the characteristics of the physical world, and that in turn, plot functions to enable the realist novel to do its own inquiries into that world. Yoon, is there anything in particular that you'd like our listeners to pay attention to as you read Kingston's You Must Not Tell Anyone? Thanks for inviting me on this podcast, Jim, and thank you for that very kind introduction. It's a pleasure to share this opening story of Kingston's narrative, which was so essential to the development of Asian American identity and Asian American studies. Her book, This book, however, was sometimes read as if it were conveying facts about Chinese culture. The one thing that I really want listeners to keep in mind is that, in fact, this is not a story about China or about Chinese customs. This is a story about Asian American identity at a certain period of American history in the late 60s, early 70s. So it marked in many ways the broader kind of public emergence of this Asian American movement, which was about asserting the independence of Asian Americans as what was then called a cultural nation. So in other words, we are not Asians, we are Asian Americans. So these folks were largely second, third, fifth, sixth generation American-born Asians. So Kingston herself was born in America. And the point that she wanted to make was, we have never been to China. We don't mm. have firsthand knowledge about it. We can only guess at what it's like over there. It's far away. We only have our parents' unreliable stories 
and diasporic customs to go on. So overheard conversations, bits of stories, things their parents would say that were puzzling or alarming. This is all we have as Asian Americans. That's the point that that Kingston wants to make. And this book, Woman Warrior, wants to share with the reader what it was like to grow up in that way. Mm -hmm. This piece, the narrator is telling us a story that her mother told her. And the narrator's own voice only appears in the in three words that I'm going to read, which is which are my mother said. Right. And yeah. all the other words I'm going to read are the mother's words. So I'm going to try to read this in the mother's voice. Okay, terrific. That that's a great intro. So <clears throat> now here's Jun Sun Lee reading Maxine Hung Kingston's opening to the Woman Warrior, which we're calling "You Must Not Tell Anyone." You must not tell anyone my mother said, what I am about to tell you. In China, your father had a sister who killed herself. She jumped into the family well. We say that your father has all brothers because it is as if she had never been born. In 1924, just a few days after our village celebrated 17 hurry up weddings to make sure that every young man who went out on the road would responsibly come home, your father and his brothers and your grandfather and his brothers and your aunt's new husband sailed for America, the Gold Mountain. It was your grandfather's last trip. Those lucky enough to get contracts waved goodbye from the decks. They fed and guarded the stowaways and helped them off in Cuba, New York, Bali, Hawaii. We'll meet in California next year, they said. All of them sent money home. I remember looking at your aunt one day when she and I were dressing. I had not noticed before that she had such a protruding melon of a stomach, but I did not think she's pregnant until she began to look like other pregnant women, her shirt pulling and the white tops of her black pants showing. She could not have been pregnant, you see, because her husband had been gone for years. No one said anything. We did not discuss it. In early summer, she was ready to have the child, long after the time when it could have been possible. The village had also been counting. On the night the baby was to be born, the villagers raided our house. Some were crying. Like a great saw, teeth strung with lights. Files of people walked zigzag across our land, tearing the rice. Their lanterns doubled in the disturbed black water, which drained away through the broken buns. As the villagers closed in, we could see that some of them, probably men and women we knew well, wore white masks. The people with long hair hung it over their faces. Women with short hair made it stand up on end. Some had tied white bands around their foreheads, arms, and legs. At first, they threw mud and rocks at the house. Then they threw eggs and began slaughtering our stock. We could hear the animals scream their deaths, the roosters, the pigs, a last great roar from the ox. Familiar wild heads flared in our night windows. The villagers encircled us. Some of the faces stopped to peer at us, their eyes rushing like searchlights. The hands flattened against the panes framed heads and left red prints. 
The villagers broke in the front and the back doors at the same time, even though we had not locked the doors against them. Their knives dripped with the blood of our animals. They smeared blood on the doors and walls. One woman swung a chicken whose throat she had slit, spattering blood in red arcs about her. We stood together in the middle of our house, in the family hall with the pictures and tables of the ancestors around us and looked straight ahead. At that time, the house had only two wings. When the men came back, we would build two more to enclose our courtyard and a third one to begin a second courtyard. The villagers pushed through both wings, even your grandparents' rooms, to find your aunt's, which was also mine, until the men returned. From this room, a new wing for one of the younger families would grow. They ripped up her clothes and shoes and broke her combs, grinding them underfoot. They tore her work from the loom. They scattered the cooking fire and rolled the new weaving in it. We could hear them in the kitchen, breaking our bowls and banging the pots. They overturned the great waist-high earthenware jugs. Duck eggs, pickled fruits, vegetables burst out and mixed in acrid torrents. The old woman from the next field swept a broom through the air and loosed the spirits of the broom over our heads. Pig, ghost, pig, they sobbed and scolded while they ruined our house. When they left, they took sugar and oranges to bless themselves. They cut pieces from the dead animals. Some of them took bowls that were not broken and clothes that were not torn. Afterward, we swept up the rice and sewed it back up into sacks. But the smells from the spilled preserves lasted. Your aunt gave birth in the pigsty that night. The next morning, when I went for the water, I found her and the baby plugging up the family well. Don't let your father know that I told you. He denies her. Now that you have started to menstruate, what happened to her could happen to you. Don't humiliate us. You wouldn't like to be forgotten as if you had never been born. The villagers are watchful. Okay, great. Thank you. So that's a very rich text for what it makes explicit, for what it leaves implicit, and also for what it leaves open-ended and even unknown. But before we dive into those aspects of the story, maybe it would be helpful if you filled our listeners in about the rest of this chapter, at least, you know, which is, has the title No Name Woman. Right. So the story that I read is only nine short paragraphs long, and it's all given within quotation marks, since it's the mother's voice directly quoted. So after this, the daughter then picks up the mic, and she tells us directly, the reader, she says, my mother would tell us stories like this. But she tells us that she herself, the daughter, could never ask for more details, and she couldn't even refer to this aunt, this relative. The mother would only tell her the, quote, necessary bits. So the daughter, who is now narrating, decides to make up the rest, to fill in all the blank spaces with more than one version of what could have happened. And she tries to connect with this aunt and to claim her as an ancestor, as a kind of proto-feminist role model, through this act of kind of sympathetic narration, imaginative narration. Mostly she tries to imagine how the aunt became pregnant, which is very noticeably not mentioned in the mother's story that I just read. So the daughter first imagines that the aunt was raped by someone from the village, but she doesn't like that version. And she then imagines that 
the aunt took a secret lover um, and kept his name to, to herself, even you know to the very end. But then the daughter starts to wonder whether that could have been possible, which leads her to confront how little she knows about the Chinese, as she calls them, about Chinese culture, about even her own family's history. And this ignorance kind of fills her with fear, which is the dominant emotion in the book. So she imagines and she narrates in a very detailed way how the aunt must have felt to give birth in the pigsty alone and how the aunt decides to take the baby along with her to the well. And then the daughter ends by wondering if she's done the right thing in telling the story, you know, on the one hand, by maintaining silence about it up until now, she's participated in the punishment of this aunt, the punishment of erasing, of denying her life. But by telling it, revealing it, she wonders if she's done something even worse. And if the aunt's ghost is going to be angry with her, and she wonders if she's going to be punished somehow for having told and having written down this story. So the rest of The Woman Warrior is a series of similar chapters that each one revolves around the transmission of stories from the mother to the daughter. Okay, that's great. That fills it out nicely. All right, well, why don't we go back then to the nine paragraphs that you read and start with that first sentence, right? So you must not tell anyone, my mother said, and you... You know, highlight the fact that my mother said is the only phrase that we get in the narrator's own voice. The rest is, you know, the quoted dialogue. So you must not tell anyone my mother said what I'm about to tell you. So that gives us a sense, I'm going to confide a secret in you, right? And then, but I'm also going to bind you to keeping the secret. So what do you make of this narrative situation? What does it start for us as we're following along? First of all, it really focuses your attention instantly on the narrative that's going to follow, that it kind of, it already frames it in a really strong, really powerful frame as a secret, as this kind of self-contained narrative. The power relationship between the narrator, the narratee, and then the narrative itself is a really interesting one because by sharing this secret the story with her, the mother does not actually bring the daughter into a kind of privileged inner circle. Mm -hmm. And that somehow the mother becomes even more powerful for telling, for sharing the secret story. And the daughter feels somehow less powerful because she has been let in on this secret, on this narrative, which is not the way that you think it would work. Right, right. You think about, okay, I'm going to share a confidence with you. Now the two of us are going to be closer because we have this in common. But this is the other. It's like, as you say, all right, I'm, uh, first of all, you know, I'm giving you the conditions, right? You must not tell anyone. And then, and we'll talk about the, the way it ends too, but it's also like this, you know, kind of, now I've told you, this is what I want the takeaway to be, right? Yeah, yeah. And it does kind of make you wonder why more stories don't begin with this kind of stipulation, like either you may share the story or you may not share the story, but not that many do, you know, which, but it also highlights the position of the narratee. And, you know, the, the subtitle of this book could very well be the memoirs of a narratee, because the daughter is always has, you know, grows up on the receiving end of the mother's stories. And the mother's stories, frankly, feel to the daughter like 
like weapons, you know, yeah, that she's yeah. at the, they've got a kind of business end as it were. And mm-hmm. she is that at that end of it. But then when she decides to take up the role of narrator herself and tells her own versions of what happened to the aunt and what the aunt was like, it doesn't seem to empower her, even though she's trying very hard to kind of raise herself to that that status of the narrator and that it just makes her more confused and more uncertain. And she keeps kind of interrupting herself and questioning herself and wondering, is my version of it plausible? Is it culturally plausible, historically plausible? So as she's trying to tell the story herself, she just ends up with more questions and then with a kind of final spasm of fear, actually, at the very, very end of No Name Woman. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. But then maybe we could talk a little bit about the paradox, right, of the recording of You Must Not Tell Anyone in a book in which then she's telling, you know, as author, uh, she's telling this story, right? So she's breaking the injunction. So we can think about the temporality of the time of the telling, right? And that's what we're getting, okay, mother to daughter at a certain point in the daughter's life, right? And now we have author to audience, about the mother-daughter thing, right? And of course, the the author and the daughter, there's a continuity of identity between them. So, you know, do you want to read a certain kind of significance to Kingston as author, you know, breaking the injunction about not telling anyone? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think that's part of the struggle, the larger story of the woman warrior, which mm-hmm. is trying to to figure out some way to make that transition from being the one who receives the story to the one who tells the story. Yeah. And it's particularly, I mean, in this case, it's almost as though that injunction not to tell the story, not to share it with anyone, kind of gives her, in a, in a paradoxical way, it gives her the impetus to actually break it. Yeah, you know, so right, yeah. and and so it's sort of like a launch pad for the entire entire book. Oh, but the but it's an incredibly vivid way to begin this book, not with her own voice as a narrator, but with the yeah. the mother as this very problematic, I guess, monopolizing narrator who would like to be the only narrator, you know, and and, and she doesn't want anyone else mm-hmm. to tell the or to tell any story, she's going to be the one who tells the story and the daughter's going to be the one who listens, yeah, I guess. Yeah, great, great, yeah. Yeah, well, let me, let's shift the, the, then. I think we'll come back to some of the aspects of the narrative situation, but well, let's shift to the mother as teller and her perspective and the kind of story that it is for her, right? So what are some of the things that stand out as when we try to think about, all right, well, what is the story that the mother is telling, right? It's, yeah, I mean, it is so bizarre because it completely leaves out the question that would be on the mind of any listener of any narrative, which is, how did the aunt become pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> but that it, it's the way, the cause and effect in the mother's story that I read, instead of sex causing pregnancy, it is here, it's out of wedlock, pregnancy causes social punishment and ostracism. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about it earlier, we used this, they came up with this term auto pregnancy, you know, that yeah. you know, she's sort of 
comes up somehow the aunt manages to get pregnant by herself but yeah that yeah. that i think is really the most the most striking thing about the mother's well there are a lot of striking things about it but the fact that the story is the aunt becomes pregnant and therefore the villagers come and punish the family yeah yeah right and that that yeah like from her perspective that's what counts and then and then she builds on that right and then here we can talk about the last paragraph right all right so i i'm telling you this you know, here's the cause and effect, the auto pregnancy, the punishment, and then, all right, you know, the last paragraph, she basically switches from narrating events to, you know, injunction more, right? Don't let your father know I told you. Right, um, right. Now that right. you've started to menstruate, what happened to her could happen to you. Don't yes. humiliate us. You wouldn't like to be forgotten. The villagers are watchful. Right, right. Uh, right. And and that, that phrase, what happened to her, is the really extraordinary thing because it's a kind of, it's a phrase that just points back at the entire story that's just been told. Right. But it doesn't, it's, it's so unclear what it's referring to exactly. Like, what happened to her? Does that mean, I suppose, getting pregnant? But it also seems to involve the villagers coming and and punishing the entire family and destroying the family house. And I mean, that sentence is, you know, kind of the moral of the story, as it were, the thing that seems to tie that story into the present moment when she's telling it. Mm -hmm. And that is a connection that, you know, that in a sense is what the narrator, the daughter is going to try to spend the rest of the book trying to figure out you know why I, I know that is not that it's not literally possible because we are not you know in the early 20th century in China. Yeah. But what sense do these stories? How does it? How is it that it can still feel like it's true? You know that that mm -hmm. there is a real threat behind those words. Yeah, yeah, and then then also the detail that we get about a little bit more about the narrative situation or the occasion of the narration and, and that now that you have started to menstruate, right? So the mother has waited until this moment in the daughter's life to tell this story and to tell it in this way, right? Yes. And, yes. and that then opens up, you know, other questions about the mother-daughter relationship and about what is it, you know, if, again, if we think about the mother, why, why tell it? to the daughter now, and then we can think about the daughter, what does it mean to get this story at this point in your life? Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. And that that it's clearly this story or hearing this story was a traumatic event in the daughter's mm -hmm. life. It was a major event. But all of the, the circumstances around the telling of this story are very, I mean, they're just completely removed. And we don't know you know, when exactly and where was this story told and what prompted it? What tone of voice did she use? Did she tell it as a bedtime story, you know, sitting next to her daughter? Did she tell her from across the room? Did she tell her first thing in the morning? I mean, because in other in other chapters of this book, the circumstances of the storytelling are often given in a lot of detail. Uh -huh. In a later chapter, the daughter, Kingston, says, 
sometimes you know when in on really hot days when we were in the laundry and we were ironing uh, my mother would tell us ghost stories mm-hmm. um to you know to send chills down our spine for mm-hmm. example so that the kind of the circumstances of the telling are very important but in this case it's very striking that they're not told at all and that there's only the reference to you know that now that you have started to menstruate is the only thing that kind of pins it down to a, a certain kind of situation and that of course also has the effect of making it clear that this is a story about and for women yeah. somehow mm-hmm. which is double edged mm-hmm. yeah yeah so you know uh, one of the things that you mentioned in our previous conversation is you know picking up on that even though this is a story of punishment and you know and, and it leads to all this stuff about secrets right there's there's a, also a kind of implicit acknowledgement of the kind of power of womanhood and you know women's behavior and you know what needs to be repressed and you know things like that you have you know more to say about that a yeah lot. that that instead of it, it it like if that story had were made into a movie let's say that most of it would probably have to do with the aunts whatever it was that led to her pregnancy so her relationship mm-hmm. with the man whether it is one of sexual violence or whether it's one of a secret love affair but in the mother's telling of it the aunt seems to have no relation to any man at all right. not a, not someone's victim she's not someone's lover and that it kind of makes her the stand alone protagonist mm-hmm. and you know the mother clearly does not intend to to empower the daughter through this story quite the opposite she tends to terrify her right. And she wants to restrict, to fill her daughter with fear and and inhibition, mm-hmm. restriction. But it kind of, in a very curious way, it has the opposite effect of possibly of, of offering a route to empowerment. I wouldn't say that the story itself directly does that, but it opens up that possibility of seeing the woman as the center of the story, basically, yeah. and also pointing to the incredible power, the destructive power, the kind of violence that can be brought about as the result of something that a woman has done. So I was thinking further about this, and maybe this way of turning the story on its side and viewing the aunt as a powerful figure Mm -hmm. comes about maybe through, only through that process of dissecting it and interpreting it and retelling it, that the daughter initiates. So maybe it's that not so much that she operates now as a narrator herself, but that she also takes up the position of a critic, perhaps, mm-hmm. okay. and that she kind of views it from a distance in the way that a critic would. And maybe that's how she ends up sort of at the possibility that the aunt, you know, becomes or that this story could could be a somewhat empowering one, though still tragic, obviously. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just while we're going in this direction, you know, in terms of turning the story on its side, there's also this occurred to me, you know, over the last couple of days, the idea that the story is also, even though the, the mother seems to be so much in control, right, and, and is doing this warning and all this kind of assertion of power, 
But there's some, uh, some things in the story about the way in which the mother has been affected that she's maybe not fully aware of communicating to the daughter in the sense that, okay, she and the aunt shared the room, mm. right? And then mm. she's the one who found the aunt after, and the baby, right, after the suicide and infanticide, yes. right? So that this, this trauma, you know, kind of not called much attention to, but maybe the way in which we could think about the trauma they inflicted on on the mother and mm. how that might be playing into her telling. Yeah, and that's really interesting, really perceptive. And I agree that one of the sort of shocking things about the story is when the mother says to find your aunt's room, which was also mine, and yeah, that yeah. she, so she lived in that same room that they were, she and the aunt well, she doesn't say actually what their relationship was. No. And were they were they friends? I mean, she does say we did not discuss it. We did not discuss the pregnancy. Right. But that they you know, they lived in the same room, they were part of the same family. But the the mother adopts this very almost exaggeratedly neutral tone, even though she's not only the narrator, she was a character in the story. Exactly, right. That she removes herself from it as if she were just some kind of detached reporter, when yeah. she was actually, as you pointed out, someone who was in the story and who had to have been affected by it, you know, yeah. and especially yeah. by this horrible discovery at the very end, and that she is the one who makes it. And I think that that's part of what propels the daughter to then kind of pick up the mic and start mm -hmm. and start telling and retelling the story is a kind of horror, a kind of outrage at how the mother has also erased herself from the story, as well as erasing the aunt from the world, you know, and from even from family history. And the daughter's relationship to her mother throughout The Woman Warrior is extremely complicated, yeah, yeah. but that there's anger and there's fear, but there's also a, just a, a tremendous amount of love and yeah. a kind of desperate longing to be loved by her. Yeah. So yeah, so the mother's kind of very strange position as not just narrator, but character in the story is also really important. Yeah, yeah, good, good. And now maybe we can, you know, look a little bit more at some of the aspects of the technique that stand out. You already, I think, you know, nicely highlighted the way in which the mother you know, does sort of tries to take on this role of neutral reporter rather than, you know, doing a lot of, well, you know, this is how I felt and this is, you know, the emotions that generated in me or all that, right? But one of the other things is about the way the time gets handled, right? Again, we might think about if it were a movie, there'd be a lot of time and space of the telling given to the pregnancy that what gave rise to it, and then especially, you know, the final events. But here, you know, the final events only get a couple sentences. Yes. And what gets the most is, is the villagers, right? Yeah. So do you want to comment on that at all? Yeah. So the way that the story handles duration is one of the most interesting things about it. one of the most powerful things, ways in which it makes its impact 
So in the first paragraph, the mother kind of sums it up and says, there was this sister who killed herself and she jumped into the well. But she then kind of pulls back and names this certain year. It's 1924. And the village is preparing to send all of its men away. So it arranges all of these weddings for these men. And then she actually tells us that about the journeys that these men take kind of where they get off at, you know, where they get off at various places off the ship. We'll meet in California next year, they said all of them sent money home. So that is one scale of time, one scale of story Mm -hmm. time. It is moving pretty fast. It's a summary that it goes, you know, we're probably looking at, I don't know, five years or many years, right after the men leave. But then we kind of move into a completely different time of the everyday of life inside the house, life in the village, and also the time of pregnancy. And mm-hmm. that there, the story is very much about the clock that's within the story. And in one paragraph or the next paragraph, the aunt's kind of growing belly is described. So we're looking at several months, mm-hmm. right, that are summarized very quickly as the aunt, you know, kind of grows larger and larger. And then she tells us that the villagers are were also counting. And so the story clock then slows down to days or to weeks and then somehow to days. So I don't really know how the villagers could have could have been counting unless they knew exactly when she conceived. But that the discourse then slows down and slows down even more as the villagers get closer and closer to the house on the night that somehow they know that the baby is going to be born that night. And that it feels, I mean, that that the details start to accumulate. We're told about kind of how they did their hair and how they wore masks on their faces and how the the sounds that the animals are making as they're being killed. And then, uh, you know, these details like their knives dripped with the blood of our animals, that this is really essentially a descriptive pause. So it's kind of like slow motion, right? And Mm, then the after effects of the violence, the red handprints that are left Mm. on the windows, the smells from the spilled preserves in the kitchen, that these are the sensory details that the narrative lingers over. And only after that, we have this one sentence, your aunt gave birth in the pigsty that night. And the suicide feels almost like it's just an ellipsis, even though we had been told it at the very beginning. But at the end, the suicide happens between sentences. Gave birth, And then the next morning when I went for water, I found her. So it's extremely artful. You know, the mm-hmm. the duration or the, the handling of duration in this narrative is extremely, extremely artful. And it also weirdly comes across as a very natural kind of narrative in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. And that, that it's I mean, that the idea that it's told that it's this is, you know, an oral narrative. Right, right. right. And the fact that we can think just briefly about the, you know, the fact, okay, so we have a kind of double retrospection, right? We have the mother telling about what happened in the past, 1924, etc. And then we have Kingston telling about the mother having told her this in the past, right? But there's something about the fact that it's a verbatim it's presented as a verbatim, exactly. you know, representation of this oral story. 
Exactly, exactly. And and that the the difference is really highlighted here between the orality of the original tale and then the daughter's written right. telling of it. And even though very shortly after where I left off reading, the daughter actually apostrophizes her readers, and she says in another very famous passage, Chinese Americans, when you try to understand what things in you are Chinese, how do you separate? And then, you know, what is peculiar to child poverty and so on. And so, but you're very aware that as a writer, she is addressing an absent hypothetical audience that that mm-hmm. you know of chinese american readers which feels very different from the immediacy of the original yeah. story yeah. Told, yeah. you know which, which is the the kind of like it's just told directly into her ears mm-hmm. and that the retrospection is not as I mean that that the thing that strikes me about this the story the mother story is that it is so vividly present and that it doesn't seem like something that happened long ago in the past but that, that it, because it's so set off by this injunction of secrecy and directly quoted that it seems to kind of keep this preserves this original trauma in a way that's extremely visceral right like it's yeah, not yeah. Oh, yeah, like long ago, I remember, you know, you had this aunt or something like that more. It's almost like it keeps its own present, you know, that it manages to remain in the present somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, you sort of get this double power of story. Well, you have we have the event, right? The events. But then we have those events, you know, transformed into the mother story to the daughter, which, you know, then gets transmitted by the daughter to Chinese Americans, to every reader here, right? And then we, you know, as we've talked about, so we have the mother's meaning for the daughter, and then we have Kingston's meaning for Chinese Americans and, and her readers, right? And we've been trying to unpack this thing. So it's, it's so much packed into it and so many things about, you know, the mother-daughter relationship, the power of storytelling, the ways in which, you know, secrets can be used as weapons, all these things. Yeah, so I I think we've touched on a lot of the the things that we hope to get to, but are there others that you'd like to comment on? Yeah, I think both gender and also Asian American identity are equally important Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to this. And to, to Kingston, this intersection could best be explored, this extremely problematic, in her view, intersection could best be explored through the narrative situation that Mm is these acts of telling stories, of hearing them, of attempting to appropriate them, and then also the kind of kind of sad loss of certainty and focus. And so, as I was saying, the mother's story is forever vivid, you know, that Mm -hmm. is captured in these quotation marks. And it's so clear and unambiguous in its hierarchy of values. But that when the daughter is then kind of retelling these various versions and talking to her absent and, you know, Chinese American readers someday, that there's just this, it's, it completely changes the the nature of the, the storytelling. It becomes one of uncertainty and, and anguish, really, mm-hmm. as opposed to 
a kind of clearly directed and focused storytelling. So she's trying her best to transfer that relationship or to acquire some of that power as a narrator. But, you know, she never manages to quite do it. And she's very, very aware of that fact. And one of the little details in this story that really hits me is the reference to the villagers and this character called the villagers in this story. I think that the daughter at once kind of, well, she's terrified of the villagers, obviously, because they're kind of like the avenging furies, but also because they seem to stand as a kind of collective, united community um, that like one person and acts like one person. And I think that this is kind of what she realizes she cannot have or will never have self. Yeah, yeah. They'll always be watching her. The villagers are watchful. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much, Yoon. This was really enjoyable. And I want to thank our listeners and say we'd appreciate your feedback. You can send it to us at our email address, projectnarrative at osu.edu, or on our Facebook page, or to our Twitter account, which is PN Ohio State. I also want to remind you that you can find 20 additional episodes of the podcast on our website or through Apple Podcasts. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure.